worship this morning. Praise God for these folks who serve us week in and week out. Quick shout out, by the way, to if you guys get to watch much of the YouTube sermons or videos and all the sound stuff that goes out in video. Jared uh, is responsible for all of that. So it's not uh, some hidden person doing it. It is him active and alive and uh, doing it well. So give him a shout out, uh, a distant high five, mock high five. I don't think we can do the real thing yet or however you want to do it. But uh, tell him thanks because I think he does a great job. Uh, let's pray together before we open God's word. Father, thank you. Thank you for giving us uh, your word. Thank you for giving us the truths found in it, timeless truths. Uh, Lord, those words are from, from your lips, uh, so to speak. Uh, they are from your heart to your people. And Lord, we are so thankful that we have it in our language. Uh, we are thankful that you illumine our minds and hearts. You give us understanding of your word. And we pray that you would do that now for your name's sake. Would we glean truth that would penetrate us deeply and change us deeply? Lord, we simply do not want to have just head knowledge, but would it reach our hearts? And God, would that cause us to look more like Christ? Would we be, Lord, really resembling our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ? And Lord, would you draw sinners to yourself? Would one, some, come to you, surrender their will to yours? Lord, and we would all do that, or love to see that, see that done for your glory and for your name's sake. Truly, there is none like our God. He is worthy to be praised. We need you, God, this time. In Jesus' name, amen. If you got your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 20. We'll look together in just a few verses. Um, by the way, this sermon uh, was to be preached back on, you're going to just you tell me if you remember this, March 15th. That seems like such a long, long, long time ago um, when we uh, suspended services here and um, met uh, virtually and YouTube videos initially and just backs of trucks and uh, boats and planes. We were preaching everywhere we could to try to bring you the word, not the boats or the planes, because I'd have to opt out on those two, but the back of the truck for sure. Uh, Acts 20, uh, verse 33, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Paul says, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes, you yourselves know that these hands minister to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything, I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, there's more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they began to weep aloud and embrace Paul and repeatedly kissed him grieving especially over the word which he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they were accompanying him to the ship. This section of scripture, brothers and sisters, that again started over five months ago, we began looking in verse 17 at Paul, there in Miltus, as he calls to the Ephesian elders to himself, and he wants to give them final instructions. He wants to give them a recap, if you will, of his ministry there. But he doesn't just want to give them a recap, and he doesn't just want to simply see them. He wants to make sure that they understand some pretty deep and important things. Number one, he tells them in verse 28, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock 
among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Because I know that after my departure, wolves will come in from where? Among you. Not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves men arise, speaking perverse things to draw the disciples after them. Therefore, he says in verse 31, be on alert, be on, a gu- be on guard, be ever watchful, be ever aware that there are going to be those from within your body who are going to subvert the very gospel that we live and die for. Be, aware, be ready for it. But now he begins to change his, his thinking to not necessarily concern himself with what's happening in the church that's going to happen in the church, but with the leaders themselves, the elders themselves. He wants to make sure that they understand what it truly means to be a leader who is going to follow the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And especially for an elder, it is a totally surrendered life to the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to make sure that we understand in this section of Scripture, Paul's words and actions remind the followers of Christ of the ministry, one, the model, two, and the motive, three, for the surrendered life. The ministry, model, and motive for for the surrendered life. Paul wants to make sure that these men understand what's required to be a leader. I would suggest to you that it's also what's required to be a Christian in following the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that false teaching in our current day abounds. We know that within many churches, what Paul talks about prophesying in the future is a current reality for many. I don't have to tell you of many ministries and ministers uh, really for a very long time, both here in America and in Europe, of the men and women who have sought to come into ministry from a leadership perspective for one reason and one reason only, to get rich, to get fat, to be provided for. I'd love to tell you that every man that has stood in a pulpit such as this has come up with the right motives, but that just wouldn't be true. Uh, All you need to do is turn on your television one evening to uh, certain stations that will go unnamed unless you press me for them. And you will see men there peddling themselves. And they will tell to you, brother, sow a seed into this ministry and you'll get a hundredfold blessing. They're there to get themselves fat. If we were to take the time to look at Jim Baker and his fall, The thing that amazed me, uh, of all the things that he purchased, was the air-conditioned and heated dog dog houses that he provided for for his animals were the thing that probably amazed me the most. With the donor's money that was coming in, some $150 million a year, he was taking and using it for those reasons. Paul is concerned that men would simply come into ministry for money. And Paul is going to reflect what is his attitude towards money and possessions. And I think we also see that very clearly in Jesus' ministry. There's a potential amongst us all to be tempted for personal gain, for money. But Paul wants to make sure as we see his life and the ministry of Christ that that's not going to be us. So number one, we see the ministry of the surrendered life in verses 33 and part of 35. I have coveted no one's silver, gold, or clothes. Now remember, Paul as he's coming in to do ministry, was taking collections. He was taking collections for various reasons, often for other brothers and sisters who were in poverty, those who were maybe even in a famine. And he also mentions, uh, even to the Corinthians, that I, I have a right, I could take a wage 
1 Corinthians 9 talks about this. That, that, that I could take a wage that ministers and those who labor in the word are worthy of their hire, should muzzle the, the ox. He talks about this aspect, but Paul says that wasn't the way for me. The, the, the model, the, the ministry that I had was different than that. I worked hard. Now picture Paul, and here's what I think we could be tempted to do with the text, and we often do this with the Bible. It, 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 we shouldn't. It, it's a narrative. It's telling a story. So it's important for us to try to put ourselves in the story. Now picture the context here. This is the last conversation Paul is going to have with these people and these people with Paul. So this is an important conversation. Can you picture, Paul, I have coveted none of your silver, gold, or clothes. And these hands, can you picture him lifting up his hands? They ministered to my own needs. And not just my own needs, but those men who were with me. And everything I showed you, that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak. Now, we know that when Paul comes into a city, oftentimes, what does he do? Because he's a tent maker, a leather worker, he begins to work. Uh, that's a novel idea in our world today. I know work is seen as part of the curse. Can I encourage you to go back and read Genesis and find out when work was initiated? And it wasn't after the curse. It was before. It was part of redeemed man's, God's plan for redeemed man, for Adam to come in and labor and work. Work is a good thing. Amen. It's a biblical thing, working, Paul says, by working hard. And needless to say, Paul worked hard for the gospel. He didn't work hard for himself. His ministry was not characterized by self-seeking. He didn't want any materialism. He didn't want their silver or their gold or to be paid in clothing. He simply wanted to serve them. And we read in verse 31 that he did that for three years serving them ministering to himself, caring for himself. There were times when he didn't support himself. The Philippians come alongside Paul at times and help him. But to the Corinthians, he says, I offered the gospel to you without charge, that I labored. I didn't ask for anything. And I want us to think for a few moments just about confronting this coveting, confront, confronting this greed, especially in leaders. Now, now, now the things that I'm preaching about are to leaders. So who should you hold accountable to this? Who's the guy in front of you? You should hold church leaders, your pastor, to these things when it comes to greed. At the annual meeting, if I'm saying, hey, don't you see how skinny I'm getting? Thank you. You see that old beater I got? I need more. You should be concerned. Proverbs 11 verse 28 says, He who trusts in riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. Ecclesiastes 5.10, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. There's a temptation in all of us to want more. But in particular, false teachers are always marked always marked by wanting more stuff, more money. Let me give you a few verses here. Isaiah 56, 11, he describes false prophets or false teachers. Uh, greedy priest is this way. He says, and the dogs are greedy. They are not satisfied. And they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have turned away their own, to their own, excuse me, each one to his unjust gain to the last one. Jeremiah picks up on this idea. 
For from the least of them, even the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for gain. And from the prophet to the priest, everyone deals falsely. Finally, Micah says these words, her leaders pronounce judgment for a bride. Her priests instruct for a price and her prophets divine for money. It's all about the Benjamins. It's all about the money for these false prophets. They want to get rich. But how do we keep free from being greedy? I think we first have to recognize that there may be a tendency in us to actually be greedy. Stories told of an old miser who was called by the charity, the chairman of the board of a community charity, and he, and he begins to speak to this miser, and he said, Sir, um, our records show that despite your wealth, you have never once given to our drive. The miser responds by saying, Do your records show that I have an elderly mother who was left penniless when my father died? Do your records show that I have a disabled brother who was unable to work? Do your records show that I have a widowed sister with small children who can barely make ends meet? Ammon, Mary, taken aback by this, says, No, sir, I, I, I didn't realize that. I'm rather embarrassed. Her records don't show those things. The miser responds, well, I don't give to any of them, so why should I give anything to you? Heart's hard. I'm not giving to anyone, let alone you. There's a tendency in our current modern world to see the greed of false teachers. Paul, excuse me, Peter talks about this in 2 Peter 2, 3, and their greed will exploit you with false words. I'm amazed at the amount of people that call for all kinds of money on the airwaves, and unfortunately, people give to them. But how do we stop ourselves from being there? Four things I want to remind you of quickly. Number one, we should always focus on Jesus. Every ministry, every minister should be focused on the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ in the world. Matthew 6, 33, but seek his kingdom first and his righteousness, and other things will be added to you. But what are we to seek first? His kingdom, his righteousness, Jesus Christ's name proclaimed everywhere that we are. It's never about us. You guys know the day when I get my, my parting letter from this church is when this becomes David A. Smith Ministries. It's time for David to go. It's never going to be about David A. Smith. It's about Jesus Christ, God incarnate, who came to save people. It is he is to be exalted. Our focus must be on Jesus, not ourselves. Number two, we must seek godliness and contentment. Paul says these words in 1 Timothy 6, 6, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. And I often think, how content are we with the stuff that we have? How content are you with what you have right now? How content are you with whatever God has provided for you? But there's, there's this idea from the world's perspective that you need more, bigger, better, faster. You need more. You can't be content. Paul says to Timothy, seek godliness, seek contentment. If we spent more time worried about becoming holy or concerning ourselves about maintaining a standard of purity before this lost and dying world, maybe we wouldn't be so concerned about stuff, about getting greedy, being content with what God has provided. Has God been good to you? He's given us our needs, not our greeds, right? He's provided everything that we need. Thirdly, we focus on Jesus. Seek godliness and contentment. Number three, rejoice and be thankful. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be made known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Be joyous. Be thankful. 
Thank you, God, for what you provided for me. Thank you, God, for the meager stuff that I have. Although it's maybe not much, Lord, thank you for it. Thank you, God. I I am so humbled and I rejoice and I bless you for what you have provided and are providing for me. Lastly, if we spent more time serving the weak and those who are quote-unquote less fortunate, maybe our focus wouldn't be so much on getting greedy. Lastly, serve the weak. Isn't that what he says in verse 35? In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, in other words, not taking wages, in other words, foregoing what I could get, I'm foregoing that, Paul's saying, because I'm working hard myself. I could, I could ask you to provide for me, but I'm going to work so that not only can I provide for myself, I'm going to provide for those men who are with me. Serve the weak. I, am, I did this to serve the weak among you, to help the weak among you. That Greek word I showed is to direct someone's attention to something. In other words, Paul's saying, I am not just talking about it. I am actually walking this out. I have been your pattern. I have been your example of what this looks like. You have seen me get up and go to work. You have seen me laboring. You know that I don't take money from you. You have watched me care for the weak. Paul is saying, I showed this to you. You Ephesian elders, when you go back, make sure you're repeating what you see in me. Don't, don't, don't be like one who is going to unfortunately make merchandise of the people as we hear in the last days. So we see the ministry of the totally surrendered life is a hard job. Anybody engaged in quote-unquote full-time ministry? By the way, sidebar here, how many of us are engaged in full-time ministry? I don't see enough hands up. If you're a Christian, you're engaged in full-time ministry. You're engaged in full-time ministry, and we oftentimes get so focused on, man, this ought to be good. This ought to be easy. Yeah, amen. I don't know if you heard that in the, out on the internet. Somebody said, huh, and I'm, amen. It's not easy. It's hard. So working hard and laboring, you think, well, I'm working so hard, therefore it's going to be this easy in dealing with people. Not so much. It's difficult, but brothers and sisters, is it worth it? You better believe it. It's worth it. So rejoice and be thankful. So we see this ministry model of Paul that means hard work. I'm not going to ask anything from you because it's going to take away from you, and I can add to the ministry by caring for myself. By the way, there may be a time, and I think if you really want to get rid of false prophets, ask them if they'll preach for free. Would you get a job and still preach? Uh... What had happened was, um, I think you're going to get some stutters. Paul gives us also the model of the surrendered life. Look at what he says there. This is the last part of verse 35. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said. Now, we don't know what reference this is because we don't see this said actually in the Gospels that Jesus actually said it. Doesn't mean he didn't say it. This means we don't see any other reference for these words. It is more blessed to give than to receive. It's more blessed to be a blessing to people. Uh, I was reading in 2 Samuel 9. I love this story of David. David, who is king, by the way, he has conquered Saul's house. But he says, and think about this, that he's in a position, and I think we are to a certain degree, of I want to bless the house of Saul. Have you ever thought about just woke up in the morning like, I want to go and bless someone today. I don't know who, I don't know where, but God, would you give me opportunity to bless someone today financially? 
David says that, and Mahibosheth comes to his mind, this lame, poor beggar who says, what am I, a dog that you're considering me? David treats him like a son, brings him to the king's table. Uh, By the way, how many of us were dogs like that? And the Lord Jesus Christ brought us to his table. He was a blessing to us. The model of ministry of this surrendered life is Jesus Christ himself. He is the absolute model of surrender who steps out of glory, steps out of the very throne room of heaven in deference to the Father and comes and makes his abode with those who are going to reject him. Matthew 20, verse 28, you know the verse, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but what? To serve and to give his life a ransom for many. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet he became poor. Why? So that through his poverty, you might come become rich. Through his brokenness, by his stripes, we have been healed. Through his brokenness, through his rejection of self and doing the will of the Father, we have reaped the benefits of that richly. How so? We've been reconciled to the Father through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 2, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but did what? emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance of a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He completely surrendered his life. He is the model of surrender. Think about when Jesus went out of his way to serve people. Uh, Think about all the times Jesus is is being interrupted by men and broken people on the side of the highway, the blind beggars. Thou, son of David, I I need sight. Heal me. Be quiet, they're telling him. Dude, I'm blind, and this dude I heard can heal. Nothing's going to stop me from yelling to him. My my son is is dead. My son, my daughter is is dying. Jesus, come. But no, no, Jesus, you don't have to come. Jesus, just, just say the word, and she'll be healed. I haven't seen this kind of great faith in all of Israel, Jesus says. Jesus says these people are hungry. Disciples, feed them. Hey, um, my debit card's a little low, Lord. Um, We anted up, and there's still not enough to feed all this crowd. I'll take care of them. And he feeds, and he provides, and he counsels. What are you, a Jew, talking to a woman like me for? Your fathers say we should worship here, and our fathers say you should worship there. Woman, there's a time coming. Somebody's going to worship here or there. Those who worship the Father must worship him in what? Spirit and truth. She runs back to her town telling the people, I met a man who told me everything about myself. Took the time to talk to me, the Savior, the Son of God. Jesus' model of surrendered life is he made time for people. But it was just those people that he, he liked, right? The ones that affirmed him. Because isn't that the ones we should be around? Just the ones that affirm me. No, the model for the surrendered life is whoever God puts in our path, we are to minister to. We are to serve as Christ served. Jesus Christ gave his life. He gave all his ministry. He gave his time to others. The Apostle Paul models that giving his time and energy to people. You won't always be rewarded on this side by people. 
You won't. But you'll be rewarded in glory by the Savior. Now, which would you rather have? Think the Savior, I pray. But we see the model for the surrendered life, the ministry of the surrendered life, and then finally, the motive for the surrendered life. I don't want you to miss this here because I think we could. And I want you to picture, just for a moment, and this may be a rather sobering thought for some of us, picture the person who is most important to you, maybe the person sitting next to you, that today will be the last day that you see them. Husbands, wives, parents, children, children, your parents, think about the person next to you. This is the last day you'll ever see them. What would you say? What would your words be? How? Hey, I know you're out of here, but peace. Drop the mic, mamba out. Is that what you do? Now, what would you say? Jeff, what would you say to your son? Dave, what did you, I don't know where Dave Schoen is. I wonder what he said to Chico and Denise. Not that it's going to be the last time he sees them, but they're very distant. What would you say? Last time. I want you to think about in this section of Scripture, we talk about the motive of the surrendered life, is the deep intimacy that modeling and ministering the surrendered life creates in people, creates in one another, in a church, in a family. The intimacy that is built, that Paul is going to experience and has experienced with these Ephesians, although now this is the last time he's going to see them. The intimate, loving fellowship that is to be developed amongst God's people that gives him glory. There's an intimacy here that I think we can miss if we just read the text. It's just, just at a cursory view. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Now, I want you to think about the last day, and we're going to pray together. David, I'm praying with David. This is the last time you're going to see me. What are we going to pray? What are we going to say? Lord, thank you so much for giving me her for 20, 40, whatever years. God, thank you. God, God thank you for giving. Lord, I, I am so thankful for them. Paul, what do you think Paul's saying about these elders? Lord, I, I know, would you protect them? The savage wolves are going to come in from among them, Lord. Would you protect them, please? Lord, let them feel the weight of this. From their vantage point, Paul has been, Lord, so important to our ministry. He has taught me so much. Lord, would you protect him as he goes forth? And this is going to be it for us, Lord. I, I, Lord, bless him. Keep him, Lord. You think that language was there? I think that and more. He knelt down and prayed with them all. And brothers and sisters, at those times, the best thing we can do is cry out to God. And those of us who had to say goodbye to people, it's hard to say goodbye. Difficult. Some of us have maybe said goodbye to mom or dad or our husbands or our wives. Some of us have had to really walk in this. This is the way these folks are feeling about Paul. And look at what it produces in them in verse 37. They begin to weep aloud. Matthew Henry talks about this as their Bokeem moment. If you know Bokeem, it's a reference back to Judges when the angel of the Lord says, I'm not going to go with you. And the people rise up and they cry out, a great cry. I love the KJV, got this one for Gary. And they all wept sore. There's a hard crying. It's not just a, 
a few tears dribbling down my cheeks. This is a hard, hard cry. They, they weep aloud. Secondly, what do they do? They embrace Paul. KJV says they fall on Paul's neck. That word embraces the same word we see of the father who is receiving his prodigal son back. This is a deep affection. They're holding one another. They are wrapping their arms around Paul. They are crying. They are intimately equated with pain. What's amazing, as I made reference to, and back in verse 31, Paul had cried for them for three years that they would grow. Now they're crying for him that they're not going to see him. Tears abounded. And I would suggest that this kind of love sometimes is lacking in the Christian church as we think about one another. Because it probably wasn't hard for you to picture people that you love, that you're close to, but you probably don't look at maybe your deacons at the church that way, do you? You probably don't look at the missionaries that way. Now, the people that you live with every day, yeah, you, you look at them like that. But do we look at each other's brothers and sisters like that? I don't, I don't know. I think we should. I think there ought to be a deep intimacy with one another. And I think that's part of the motive that we will become one. Why? Not that we can simply just be one in and of ourselves, that the world will know and say, look at that love. Look at that compassion. Look at the intimacy amongst those body of believers. Well, not only do they embrace him, not only do they weep for him, they kiss him. Now, who did I say came down? The Ephesian elders. These are all men. This was completely appropriate for men to kiss one another. So in order to get some practice with that after the service, <laughs> I wished I could pan the camera around to faces. We're going to line up men and walk out vigorously uh, <laughs> with high fives. Um, they kiss one another. This intimacy is so deep. Again, they're not going to see him again. When he said these things, he knelt down, prayed with them all. They began to weep aloud. He embraced Paul. They repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially. Well, why are they grieving? Why are they weeping? Why are they embracing because the words which he had spoken that they would never see his face again. That's what got him. They know that Paul's going to go away and Paul's going away to die and they won't see his face again. And we might think at a very cursory reading that, man, this is a hopeless situation until we examine the text and we ask ourselves a question. Is that true? Will they see Paul again? Will you see the loved one who has gone on and died in Christ? Will you see them again? Hey, Amen. I need some like you believe it. Because if we don't believe it, why are we here? If we don't believe that the dead in Christ have gone to a better place and they're going on and we're going to see them again, that's what it's all about, right? That's part of what it's about. We have hope. We believe that what Jesus says is true. Death is not, has, does not have the final say. We will see them again. You can say that confidently. You will see them again. They will see Paul again in the sweet by and by. Some glad morning when this life is over, I will fly away. 
I'm going up yonder. We used to sing in the church. I'm going up yonder. What a day that will be. They will see Paul again. And that intimacy that they, the tears of sadness, he'll turn our mourning into dancing, into joy. The tears of sorrow will be replaced with tears of joy like we do when we see one another who we haven't seen in a long time. Oh, hallelujah. I see you. The tears will be changed. The intimacy that we experience here will be experienced for eternity, surrounded by the one that we love and who loves us, God our Father, Lord Jesus Christ. They grieve for a season, but they will see him again. Totally surrendered life is to be lived in a ministry of hard work, laboring for others. Blessing others, modeled by our Lord Jesus Christ with the motive of developing a deeper intimacy amongst God's people. Not just for ourselves, but that the lost and dying world would see and say, what is going on with that kind of love? That kind of intimacy. But brothers and sisters, this starts with surrendering your will to his. Maybe some of you are holding back and saying, God, I know what I I know what you want me to do. I know what I think I should be doing in terms of laboring in your kingdom, but for whatever reason, you've said no. Maybe some of you said, Lord, I don't even recognize you as Lord. I'm not surrendering to you at all. Today would be that day that you really need to truly examine where is my posture, what's the posture of my heart before him? By his grace, I pray that he has opened your eyes that you might see and receive the glorious light of the gospel that which you would recognize who you are before a holy God, a sinner undone, and that you're in need of a Savior. And that you will place your trust in him as Lord and Savior, as King and Redeemer. Pray that you would find yourself around other fellow following believers, maturing believers, growing, challenging one another to maturity. I pray that that would be you this morning. If you haven't surrendered, that you would surrender today. Reminded of an old song shared by those who are more gospel-y in their inclination or southern gospel-y in your inclinations. We even let us reform folks. I think we might even sing it on occasion, on special occasions. All to Jesus, I surrender. Make me Savior, holy thine. Let me feel thy Holy Spirit, truly knowing that thou art mine. All to Jesus I surrender. Lord, I give myself to thee. Fill me with thy love and power. Let thy blessings fall on me. Most of us just remember the first part of the song. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I what? Freely give. I will ever love and trust him. In his presence daily live. I surrender all.
Can you say that? I surrender all. All to thee, I surrender all. I surrender all, my blessed Savior. Surrender all. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that your people have spoken those words and meant it, that it has deeply resonated in their hearts and it's not just been a one-time or a an emotional response to a message, maybe even like this, that it hasn't been, well, I did that. I said those words. But have I really walked with him? Have I really committed to what the words are saying? Lord, none of us have completely surrendered everything. We can't say the all is, has been all in our life. But I pray that our goal is to press, press on, surrendering more and more to you, giving more and more to you. And Lord, maybe for the first time, there'd be one in our midst who would truly surrender their will to yours, surrender their entire life to you. Lord, not for any glory that I or we as a church may receive, but solely for the glory of you, God. Would you grant repentance to one or some today? Thank you, Father, for calling us into this ministry of reconciliation. Thank you, Father for showing us in the Apostle Paul and in the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, what a surrendered life looks like. May that be us. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're